You are listening to the Smaller Your Hunting podcast, the podcast dedicated to just anything and everything that is the white-tailed deer. You know me, I'm Ty Miller, your host, founder, and the voice of SmallAgreHunting.com. You are the ones that made this turn from a blog to a website to a YouTube channel to everything that it is. So hopefully you find this new venture, this new consistent delivery of information via the podcast useful. But less chatting on the intro, more chatting on the topic. Let's get this episode started. Let's talk whitetails. All right, on this episode of the Smaller Hunting Podcast, guys, we are stepping into part two of designing a habitat plan. And today's episode is going to hone in on one crucial aspect of designing a habitat plan, attacking a property and creating it to be all that it can be. If there's one episode that I think will stand up and be able to be shared and replayed and illustrate why I think I've been successful, why Pops has been successful, why what we do has worked so well on such small, overhunted, overlooked, um, and seemingly not as good properties. Now, I have some really good properties. The Swamp property is incredible. For those that have followed and everything, it is a property that we don't own, and it butts up against the big swamp. There's a lot of factors out there. That property should be so much better than what it is. But I would argue that that's one of that's probably the only property that we have that a lot of people would be like, man, that's that, that's a great spot. The nine acres that I grew up on the homestead, which we are going to be saying goodbye to this spring, my parents are selling it. It's one that there was people that came. I remember when I was younger that went and looked at it, and they just stated it wasn't big enough. There wasn't enough deer. There's too many people. Everything negative about a property it had. My 22 and change acres, very few hunters, very few hunters, um, think of something like it and the factors that I have to deal with there as a great spot. But we've turned it into one. And a lot of that is attributable, the success on that property and the success on the homestead property. However, we, we, we had a much bigger time frame of learning on the homestead property because we didn't know what we were doing when we first started. But a lot of the success that we've created now, the consistency of which we elevate our chances on the mature bucks on our property is because of what we're going to discuss today in the second part of making a habitat plan. And this is the part of every consult that I have slowly more and more stressed over and over again. I have learned to be kind and respectful, but also very blunt um, with it. If you don't do this, I would say you're slashing your chances of enhancing your property and accomplishing your goals Unless your goals are just simply to have deer use your place, maybe up your chances at any deer. But if you care even a little bit 
a little bit about harvesting mature-er deer, whatever that is for you. Maybe you've never killed a buck. Or maybe you have and you've just never killed a two-and-a-half-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old, whatever it is. If you don't do today what we're going to talk about, which is, is the very next thing that I like to talk to people and the very next thing after, you know, on the last episode we talked about what are your goals and how do you measure success? Like that, that's the first question that I typically will present to people to think about. The second one is let's step back, not look at your property in a microscope. Let's step back and on the macro approach to things, look around your property. What is there predominantly? What are the strengths, weaknesses of the surrounding area? What is the surrounding area to your property providing to the deer? We've got those two things. That's why we're on this episode. Now, we're going to start the ball. We're going to push it down the hill. And we're going to start picking up steam. And we're going to create one of the best deer hunting properties that we can. But right before we do that, we got to switch from macro where we just were. And we're going to talk micro on your property. And this next part is making my property or the property the best property for the two biggest things lacking in the area, which was answered in number two or that second question that we talked about. Making the property the best property for the two biggest things lacking in the area. Now, You're probably like, wait, that's odd. I've heard the term, you know, fill the most needed hole or the bucket. Guys, gals, I'm not talking about food, security, cover, things of that nature. Nope. The very first thing is security. Every single thing, once we start designing implementing and planning is worthless if the deer don't feel safe on your property. And there is a multitude of different ways that we accomplish that. There's basically three overall And as I talk, who knows, maybe I'll create a fourth one. But there's three main ones, main ways that we do that. And that's with the habitat, which has probably attracted you guys to this podcast. Probably attracted you to the previous episode in this one. Maybe somebody shared with you because you just bought a new property or something. You're trying to get ideas, trying to glean some thoughts. We create security and the safety of deer through habitat. This is throughout every habitat manipulation and decision we make. Security is at the top as to why we're doing it. When we log, we we do so most likely aggressively. Only save the exact trees which you desire, um, but always keeping sunlight hitting the ground, the driving force behind a tree staying or going. Because that early successional growth, that cover is doing us 
thousands of times more than a tree standing. It just is. And I'm not saying you just wipe and eradicate all of them. There's a, there's a time and place for a few oaks, and we're currently logging. But that is one way that you are creating security is by logging. Maybe logging is not the proper way for your property to be handled. Maybe TSI work, maybe hack and squirt, girdling, cut and remove, clean cutting, top cutting, whatever you want to call it. Hinge cutting is also something. Every single one of those or one of those or multiple or two of them may be the proper thing for your property. But security, if you don't make them feel safe, none of it's going to matter. The design of our food plots, the encouraging and winding and, and escape routes and proximity to cover is something we must always keep in mind because we need them to feel safe. And this goes more so to a smaller type property. Most of you are listening to this because you don't own thousands and hundreds of acres. We're not looking to be a deer's destination food source. Now, if you have a large enough property and you have good bedding off of your property and you can provide a five to ten acre field and you still have a bunch of ground you know I can't do that that's half my property but one of the ways that I know we attempt to always up the security factor is a deer on my property by the time they touch the ground on that second landing of a leap from where they're standing they're going to leap once and when they leap again, when they land, they can be in cover no matter where they were standing on my property. And oftentimes, it can be one jump. My food plots are not fat and bulky. They're always small enough to where a deer in two bounds can be to an edge in cover. Security. Safety want them to feel safe because if they don't feel safe they're not going to use my property in the time frame that I can kill them that's the goal I can't be successful I can't meet my goal no matter what you wrote down unless they're there in legal time for me to do it the second main way so we have habitat hunting the way we hunt. This is probably one of the biggest mistakes that I see walking properties, getting maps, things of that nature from people. Um, they are destroying the security factor. Now, um, I think if you go to YouTube and you just type in, you go to my channel or type in Small Acre Hunting, the story you leave behind, or if you look up the story you leave behind, something like that, you're going to get a hit of a, of a short video where I express my thoughts of every time we visit a property it's like we leave a note for the deer they may be intrigued by it they may be intimidated by it they may be scared it may be good maybe bad but we do we leave a story behind for the deer to read what are you telling the deer the biggest mistake that i see guys making is access and exit. Entrance and exit routes is huge. I honestly, 
Um, if somebody were to ask me, what is the biggest factor in making deer feel safe or unsafe on a property or what can be detrimental the quickest to a property's security factor, the safety factor of it, my answer is going to be poor entrance and exits. Whether that property is well-designed, has good habitat, things of that nature, the deer are there or they're not, you are going to lessen it so quickly and ruin it so fast if you don't have good entrance and exit routes. And here, let me, let me just, so let's break this down a little bit. Not every location on a property can or should be hunted. I know that stinks. And I know that's tough for guys with small properties especially to do. But I would almost argue the smaller the property, the less you hunt and the less spots you hunt. Period. And if that's tough for you, go hunt public some. Pick up another hobby because you're going to need distraction because you are going to have to pick and choose wisely, my friends. Because we're in this to meet our goal. And I guess I didn't elaborate on this enough. I am going to make the glorified assumption moving through these podcasts moving forward that you want to kill bucks. Significant bucks. What, a good buck for your area. Not saying you're only a trophy buck hunter because you're going to slap some does too. That's the assumption. So with that assumption, I'm basing this entire conversation because that's 90% of the clientele that I get. It, 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 it's, it's not the freezer fillers. However, we love filling freezers. It's not the five and a half, six and a half booner only type guys. It's guys like me, like most of you listening. You want to up your chances at a great buck for your area. And that may change as your property matures, as the area changes, as pressure changes. But it's a good buck for your area. It's a top 15, 20% buck representation for your area. And you're not going to do that if you don't have good entrance and exits. You're just not. You're going to get lucky. You might get lucky. You might kill some good bucks. Because you might get lucky. I don't want to depend on luck. I will accept luck. I will openly accept luck. Hand it to me. Let's do it. I'll shoot it. A buck just happens to, to occur. I'll take it. But I'm not going to depend on luck. I know a lot of guys that say, well, my property's just not that good until the rut hits. And man, when the rut hits, I just got to get out there and just keep hunting. And you never know what the rut can go. I am not the kind of person that wants to have such a crappy spot, a crappy property that I can control things on that it takes bucks being stupid looking for a girl like a college frat boy that's half drunk, doesn't know what he's doing or saying. He's just going I don't I, I don't want to design it. And I know if you're listening to this and you follow small like you're hunting, that's not your mindset either. But I think sometimes we fall into that mindset of, well, you know, they can they can be anywhere. 
They can go anywhere. It's that time of the year. And I'll be honest, when they get into that phase where they are getting kind of stupid and they are changing, it might change up where I go. I'm, you might find me taking a little bit of a little bit of a push in, a little bit of a riskier set. I've got a stand location right now because we're logging that I'd love to try to find a spot to put a stand up, and I will hunt it once, most likely. And it's going to be, ladies and gentlemen, right between Halloween and November 12th, somewhere in there. My property really turns on from about November 2nd to November 12th, every single year. I've got some does that they just really seem to come in. And then I got some later dates too. I got some dates that my property really turns on. I've got another property where the dates are slightly different. But entrance and exits. Um, a good example of this, okay? Um, Matt, if you're listening, you know, I decided to do the podcast tonight instead of uh, your, your, your consults up. And I know you've been really patient, but... Life's just been crazy, and it's easier for me to just sit down and read this script of what I wrote than uh, try to do a full-fledged consult for you. But Matt is a great example. He has a really good high-potential property. Um, I'm not going to go into too many details because I don't want to give anything away, but Matt's a good example. And I, I'll actually use the the River Bottom property that I, that I hunt. Um, or no, that's not a good – well, let's just paint a picture, all right? Let's say we have about 10 acres, which is not the case in, in this one. But let's say we have 10 acres. And on one side, we can enter. Let's just say the west side, we can enter. Okay? And the whole... We can, we can enter anywhere along the western side. We can get to the western line and walk the western line. The whole southeast kind of corner of things is a swamp bush briar bramble mess no it's 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 dry enough that things grow in it it's not like a bog or or a real soupy swamp it's not a non-bedding swamp like i call them sometimes but it's an actual bedding swamp it's got enough fertile ground it's got some pockets of water you know some areas that fill up with water the most it's got a creek that kind of runs through it but the whole southwest corner of this property is a portion of a greater area that's like that. It's the bedding area. It's the big area over there. And since we have a lot of west and northwest winds, I got to stand on the eastern edge of the property, just on the north side of that swamp that I, I like to get to. So I'm not blowing right at it. And, you know, with a west wind, I, I can cut that top and everything. But I, I gotta walk right through the property to get to it. I don't have a good access and entrance, or I can't access an entrance from any other location. I'm gonna tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, that is a stand that I don't want to hunt. That's a stand that I have got to lay down a story to get to. Unless I'm digging a tunnel, or dropping in from an airplane, or installing a zip line. I'm not going to do it. That's a stand like the one I talked about that I may make the sacrifice of getting up really early and going in on once. And I'm only doing that when I've learned my property to an extent that it's worth it. I know my property. I know that if I'm going to push in, it's this five to nine day window. 
based on trail camera history, sighting history that I have logged where man, this is the predominant time frame when things happen. This area. Whether it be because the deer are cycling around my property right now or they are elsewhere really close. But every year, historically, this is the time frame. And I'm going to slide in there. I'm going to go in quick. And I'm going to do a lot of the things in number three. Because you got to remember, we're still on number two of how to create security. Because if you don't create security through all these aspects, everything else we decide. Location of food plots. Location of bedding. Hinge cutting. Doing logging. Uh, trail locations, winding corridors, bedding options, sculpting edges, things of that nature. None of that matters if you don't have deer that feel safe to be there. So I don't want that stand. And the bad thing is, given the fact that I have access on the west side, I have predominantly west and north, northerly winds, I'm kind of not going to be able to hunt that property very often. I'm going to probably have a hard north wind stand set up somewhere along the west side of that bedding area because that corridor is going to be a travel route of bucks checking the downwind side of that bedding. Um, granted, downwind side of that bedding is typically only going to happen on easterly winds. However, North winds, given the location of that bedding option and stuff, I bet you I've put a food source or two or a corridor of food um, up through the middle and northern section of this property. So deer are going to come out of that bedding, head into a northerly wind possibly. I'm encouraging that travel. I have a short entrance and exit from the southwest corner of the property. Slide into a stand. I can watch corridors leading out of that bedding with a northern wind. Easterly winds, I'd also be okay. Easterly winds, this property is going to be money. Because I can do short entrance and exits to any place from the west side of that property. Southerly winds, I might have a good stand overlooking the food, kind of as observational sit, a lower percentage, um, but, but still highly likely to see deer. Um, might just be a late time on the food source, on that third food that they get out of their beds and hit before they go to their destination food sources. The food sources that they typically will hit in daylight hours because they feel safe and they're not massive. Um, typically. This is all typically speaking. So... The deer that I'm after, these bucks, they're not going to go waltzing out into a bean field if they don't feel safe or they're in a pressured area. Now, they might walk out into an acre food plot of greens that I have planted with some brassicas and stuff or, or a corridor, winding winding corridor no, long, no wider than 10, 10 yards wide, and it breaks in and out of cover and narrows and widens at times and, and gives a depth perspective to your property, and we'll get into that. When we, when we get past creating security. But your entrance and exits, where you park, your access, where you can access the property. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, guys, one of the biggest things, I know sometimes people get, they don't like having a bunch of neighbors or they don't like having neighbors um, 
they, you just don't always have a good relationship with neighbors and you know try to have the best relationship you can if for no other reason than take advantage of having that good relationship and i'm not saying just to hunt their property maybe you can gain access just asking permission hey I know you don't want people hunting your property. I know you don't want me hunting your property. I'm not asking to hunt your property. I'm just asking to walk. I'm not going to, and I'll even call you. I'll even let you know, hey, I'm going to be hunting a stand that if I can use your property tonight, that'd be great. Uh, you know, we talked about it. I just want to give you a heads up. If you can, If you can multiply the point of entries to your property, that could be huge in your success massive leave the least amount of a story behind don't ever purposely ask deer to cross your trail you know it, it, it's inevitable deer go wherever they want deer will walk anywhere and, and they could happen but i am never gonna ask purposely or knowingly get up a tree where I think there's a good likelihood that a deer is going to have to walk across my trail, cut my trail. Just not going to do it. Not going to do it. Now, there are times, and I will take this to an extreme, guys. Okay, so that stand location on my property now that I shared earlier that now that we've logged and there's a location that I know is going to get good and I want to get to it, but there's just not a good route without having to leave a story in a spot that I don't want to leave. However, there's a section where I think I can slip in, I can cut a corridor, it'd be low likelihood of deer crossing it, and where I think they may cross me, you know what I'm going to do? I've got a bunch of paver stones, and they're kind of the small ones, you know, they're like eight inches tall by maybe three and a half, four inches wide, they're not huge. I'm not even joking right now. I know some of you already know where I'm going with this. I'm going to half bury one or two of those at sections where a trail cuts my trail route into the stand. And I'm going to make sure I walk on those rocks. Stone, hard surfaces, absorb less scent than porous surfaces. Now, I know my boots don't leave much of a story, if any, at times. I carbon treat them, do all that stuff. We're going to talk about that stuff in, in number three. And I know that's that's going to be where maybe I separate myself from people that even I follow <coughs> and people that I respect and people that I follow. Um, but we'll get there here in a second. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bury those pavers because I know right now I'm going to have to cut one travel route and it might be where the deer typically don't retreat up into the bedding at this spot that I'm going to be uh, crossing but they 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 leave the bedding there but if I get in there in the morning and hunt this stand all day like I want I'm the likelihood of me having a shot opportunity of them going back to the bedding options will occur before they get a chance to cross that trail That's just a step I'm going to do. My hunting tactics, my hunting techniques, my entrance, my exit, my parking, my access, everything is 
geared towards and the decisions I make are driven first and foremost by does this encourage safety, security for the deer? And one bullet point that honestly I think a lot of people struggle with is how much you hunt. So, you know, sometimes hunting less is the creation of more security in and of itself, and you need to make that decision. I always have, you know, I always tell people, have support properties if you can. There's always a public spot that you can go hunt, honestly, within an hour of your place, typically speaking. Typically speaking. I do think the nearest public land to me, about an hour and ten minutes. But, you know, if I didn't have some of my other small private, lower quality locations to fill in some of my hunting itches, my property wouldn't be nearly as good as it is. But hunt less. Oh, just thought of another one inside of this. Checking cameras. Trail camera checks. You got it. The timing of them is crucial. Don't check them that often. The re- Honestly, a lot of the recon, and to be honest with you, um, Another podcast to really check out, guys, is is Don Higgins and uh, co-host Terry Peer, Chasing Giants podcast. Um, they touch on this. It's something I've been doing for years is the trail camera images that you're collecting in season. I've always found those pictures are going to tell you a bigger story about the future than they are the present. Because the present story has already been told. The pictures have been captured. However, tendencies of bucks they really do have a, in a generality, in a sense, once those deer hit to about three and a half years old, tracking those movements, it blows me away at the consistency of, of, of movement and time frames when you have a buck where his swing-through patterns, he's not one that's around a lot, but he, you know, he swings through every single December. It seems like. And then when you start logging the things, you start seeing, well, he's never swung through before December 17th, but he's always swung through by at least Christmas. We had a buck at the swamp property that for four straight years, this buck did that. Old, massive buck. I called him Godzilla. Just a giant of a deer. Gnarly sticker points everywhere. Just died of old age as far as we know. There was one other hunter that knew the deer, got pictures to him. He knew the deer. Uh, he actually had seen the deer the year he shot another giant buck we were after. Um, he said it's just a really cool old buck. <laughs> really cool. But checking trail cameras, just don't do it during the season. You know, I try to, once my last camera pull, which is, is honestly about a week prior to me having the option to hunt, which before that used to be the end of September, now I can hunt on two of my places September 15th because they're reduction zones. <clears throat> I may pull a card. My last card pull will usually be when we plant food plots. And then after that, it's when I'm by there. Not with the intent to check it. Now, if it's raining, that's the exception. If it's storming and raining, I'll check trail cameras, and especially if the wind's a good direction. You have to think about wind when you're checking cameras as well. There's been times I've went to the property. I've only been able to check three or four cameras because the wind's just not right for the other locations. Um, if you want to check, you know, the, one of the best times to check all your cameras is at, 
in the dead of night in a storm. Otherwise, just don't do it. Why leave a story behind for the deer? Why? I believe you do not earn enough disturbing your property by checking a camera. It's all self-motivated. It's all self... It's just you can't handle not seeing or knowing what's happened. You can learn it in a week. You can learn it in a month. And it'll still be worth the same, in my opinion at least. Because you'll get to know your property. You'll get to know the activity. You'll get to begin to judge it. Your woodsmanship will grow as you listen and watch and learn your property. You don't have to rely on checking cameras or having cell cameras. Now, I understand cell cameras have kind of changed the game. You can check your cameras without really checking your cameras. And I, I, I don't like the price tag of them, but I also personally, just, just me personally speaking, I don't know. There's something about that which I just... I'm I'm in I'm I'm fifty fifty on it. Half of me feels like man, it just feels like it cheapens the 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 challenge, if you will. The other half of me is like that would be amazing. But the third and final way that we go about making our property the best property in the area, in in this in in one of you know. This whole podcast led in with making my property, now that we have the first two questions, this part is making my property the best property for the two biggest things lacking in the area. And I I don't care where you are, the most predominantly lacking feature is security. And even if there's another location on your, you know, there's a huge sanctuary next to the swamp property. Security is still a factor and a leading factor issue in the area and for my property because if i don't have it it don't matter what hole in the bucket i'm filling we've talked about you do that with habitat we've talked you do that with your hunting and this one kind of ties in this is kind of woven in i've always made it a third one because it really isn't just about hunting or when you're hunting and that's your hygiene so the three H's, if you will, of security, and I've talked about this before, so it might be sounding familiar to people, but habitat, hunting, hygiene. This is scent precautions. Now, I'm not saying there's magic pixie dust made out of unicorn horns out there that's going to cure everything and eliminate all your scent, but there are scientific things that have been proven to mitigate, lessen, deplete, <coughs> cover, Whatever adjective you want to use, it there it has been proven. You know, we know we've known for years that you place baking soda in a in a in a stinky refrigerator, it's gonna get rid of some of that odor. It's true. So I've got baking soda in some of my totes. It's just one of the things. Activated carbon, zeolite, those literally are compounds that absorb scent. They do. The whole scent lock litigation, research it, you will discover it was not, it was never about whether the technology worked or not, because it does. So I do use 
currently I don't I don't use only scent lock, but I do use scent lock. I use carbon clothing. However, I'm getting away from it more and more. I, I've been just thoroughly impressed with Sitka. Everything they make is just incredible. You know, they've got some antimicrobial features, which if you fight microbes, microbials and such, um, you're going to stink less. <laughs> it's just natural. Um, if you can wick moisture away from the skin, that's going to create less stink. So, I mean, there are anti-scent features about Sitka. They don't necessarily have zeolite or activated carbon in them or things like that. I think some of their garments may have silver. That's an antimicrobial, I think. I think it does. I don't know. You'd have to look at it. Um, I don't remember offhand. But I, I have activated carbon powder. I mean, you guys have all seen my hunting videos. You've seen that. There's times where I look like I just have black powder all over my face, and it's because I, I do. Um, I try to not get it up my nose because it's one of the worst things. I mean, it just literally makes your snot rockets hurt. <laughs> but, but And you bet you never thought you'd hear snot rockets in this podcast, but you did. But it is. I mean, you got you got ozone is another factor. Um, I use ozone to treat my clothes. I do not have an ozonics. Pops does. He swears by them. Um, I just me being a, a a person who enjoys filming my hunts. I don't need another object hauling up the tree stand. Um, I've thought about building the exterior pouch for it to sit kind of in my backpack, but it needs to be able to breathe to an extent, and I just don't want to have to put another hook up and stuff but i i've thought about it um i think i think uh ozone definitely does what it says but i think ozone machines are deadly in blinds i think they can be deadly in a stand on lower wind condition days <laughs> i've sat around a bonfire i mean just try to keep the ozone cloud just try to picture on a windier day your ozone cloud having to mirror your scent cloud i just i don't know um the way you dress. One feature that I always tell everybody is, you know, whether you, I, I have a truck that I use for hunting and working at the property. And then I, I have a commuter car for data. I know not everybody can do that. Now, granted my truck's a piece of, well, yeah, it's not good, but gets the job done. But I run ozone machine in it all the time. Um, from about July or August on, I don't allow me to, you know, if I'm going to the property and I, I've got a chainsaw and such, I don't, I don't put anything in that cab of the truck that's going to smell or transfer scent. I'm constantly cleaning and washing stuff inside of there. It might get dirty in the sense that there's a lot of stuff in there, but I'm running ozone in it every single night. Everything that I touch um, is getting washed. Transportation is crucial. Uh, you can take all these scent precautions, but if you're not watching what you're you're driving in and what you're transporting and what you're touching, that's all going to leave, again, a story behind for the deer. And your route in and such and what you touch is a direct transfer of scent. But you got to also remember when you enter and exit, you're leaving a scent cloud story as well. Your scent is being broadcasted and transferred all over the place. Whatever direction the wind is traveling, your scent particles are drifting, and that can ruin an entrance or exit too. So keep that in mind, and your hygiene plays a factor. The less scent you're giving off, the less likely you are to, to be detected, the less likely you are to leave an, 
a negative uh, trail response behind. Um, I'm not a big cover scent person. I don't necessarily want deer to smell something that intrigues them or, you know, if they smell, you know, some guys will use cover. I'm just not a big cover scent person. I don't want to smell like anything because my, you know, a deer's nose is better than a bloodhound's, they say even, and it's definitely better than a human's. And I don't want them to be like, that cedar smell smells a little off. You know, I can smell the difference between imitation vanilla extract and real vanilla extract. And if my nose can decipher between those two, I'm just thinking artificial scents and scents out there, I, I, I just don't know how many old deer we're fooling. So I use scent away sprays. I don't use cover scents personally. That's just me on my little soapbox. But I take scent precautions no matter what I'm doing at the property. Now, if I'm working, riding the tractor, cutting trails and such, I try to wear the same. I have work boots that I wear out there all the time. I would think the deer are going to get used to that scent. It conditions them to it. It's not an an, an intimidating scent. Um, but I tell you what, you know, they know certain time frames and locations where it's okay to smell those things. If I started wearing those and trouncing up through the bedding areas and such like that or or atypical locations it's gonna send a rift through their survival mode going what is going on so you got to keep your hygiene in check um you know i know some guys aren't quite there with this like i am but i just think it's an important part i have transportation clothes i get dressed at the location i know guys that aren't big on carbon ozone things of that nature but they do firmly believe in showering and changing at the location and not letting your boots just throw around in the back of the truck so bottom line i think worst case you need to get in you always need to be sure to bathe clean yourself have totes for your clothes your boots keep all that away don't ever let your transportation clothes and smells come in contact with those um, whether you use fancy detergent or ozone, you know, I think treating your clothes with an ozone machine, you'll notice a difference. You'll notice a difference that they don't smell um, nearly as much. They, don't, they, they smell like a little bit like fresh rain, and that's it. Ozone's a naturally occurring element out there in the wild every single day, pretty much. So, especially after a rain. But that is the first and most pivotal part of making the property have the best or be the best property for the two biggest things lacking, security. On the next episode of making a habitat plan and attacking the habitat on a property, we're going to delve into the second aspect of that, and that is utilizing the macro approach we've done. We've looked around the property we understand now after this episode that every decision we make must keep security in mind. Otherwise, we're going to override everything we do. We understand that. And we know what the biggest need in our general area is. And we're going to make our property the best at it. And there may be a caveat to that, an exception to the rule. But there's always an exception to the rule. But for the most part, on the next episode, we're going to talk about 
filling the greatest need in the area. We're going to be the ice cream truck. We're going to be the dessert. We're going to provide something that nobody else is. And the deer are going to come. I guarantee you. That's on the next episode, though. Thanks for listening, guys. Hopefully it's been beneficial. As always, like, subscribe, share. This thing's only happening because of you. So if what you're hearing is at minimum stirring up thought process, helping you ask yourself questions, confirming, maybe raising more questions. If it's raising more questions or you have more questions on something that I covered in today's episode, hit me up, smallacrehunting at gmail.com. I'm always there. I will answer as much as I can. I will be honest. We are right smack dab in the middle of this coronavirus thing. My job is insane right now. Um, in the role that I am and without going into detail of what I do, it's just been it's just been crazy because um, what I do isn't important, but it's just been nuts. But I will always try to respond to you, especially within a week. I always try to at least once a week sit down and make sure I've gone through my email and answered and responded to things. So hit me up if you have any questions. Or if you see this link on Facebook that I post, Post in the comments. Have discussions. There's other guys that, you know, there's been times where there's been some really good conversations in response to some of the things that I've posted. Feel free to do that as well. But I think that's all I got for you guys right now. If you're not already, now's the last little bit of time probably to get in a frost seeding. If you're in my area, it's, it's, it's definitely getting just below freezing at night and then elevating during the day. We've got some rains, those things that can set the seed. Things aren't exploding with green so those those old food plots those those previous year brassica plots even the even the cereal grain plots that haven't quite come out of dormancy however rye probably is if it's not in your area it's it's real close to so get out there you can be doing that logging hinge cutting things of that nature and if you're still waiting and you don't have a plan together um don't worry there there's always steps to start taking at any time during the year any time during the year yes you might miss out on a little bit of post winter uh, knowledge that you can garner from a property that you can't garner another time but guys I'm telling you I bought my property in March I missed the window to do much that first year but I still accomplished a lot that summer So there's always something to do. There's always something to enhance, even if that means setting at home and designing, setting at home and planning, going through trail cam pictures, logging them into a spreadsheet. Um, Things of just all those things go into a good habitat plan. And uh, we may delve into some of them on a future episode, but this is the second episode of hopefully a series of episodes that you can go back to, I can point to, and guys can rely on when they're designing their own or trying to help somebody else maybe even. I don't know. This is Ty. God bless and good luck out there. As I already said before, thank you for listening to this episode of the Smaller Hunting Podcast. Hopefully wherever you find yourself, private, public, big land, small land, New hunter or old hunter, there's something that you've learned. For ultimately, that's all I care about. If you have any topic discussion ideas for the Small Acre Hunting Podcast, be sure to email me at smallacrehunting at gmail.com. 
Be sure to like and subscribe to all the videos on YouTube. Like and follow the Facebook page. Check out the website from time to time. And as always, stay tuned for the next episode of the Small Acre Hunting Podcast. God bless and good luck out there.